0: When we talk about the principles of Christian freedom and God's glory, specifically as Christians using our freedom to glorify God, the foundation must be a focus on other people. Serving others, loving others, considering others, preferring others. These are all things that we saw last week as we began our series on freedom and glory. And we have to understand that when God in His Word explains or lays out these truths for us to follow, He's not saying merely others and self, but others before self. Ultimately, we do this because we want the theme of our lives to be the glory of God, to honor Him, to worship Him. And what glorifies God is not selfish pursuits or love of self, it is the selfless pursuit of righteousness, which is summed up in a love for God and a love for other people. This is what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 30, which say this. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Starting last week, we've been looking at seven principles and using freedom for God's glory. We saw the first two of these seven last Sunday. We'll finish it off this morning. And the first two were the crux and the cornerstone of Christian freedom. Just briefly by review, the crux being the choice between that which is lawful, that is that which is allowed in Scripture, anything not expressly forbidden or commanded in the Scriptures, we call them gray areas, areas of Christian freedom, versus that which is profitable and edifying for others. In other words, spiritually profitable, spiritually edifying and building up. This is to be done to all neighbors we saw last week, which simply means all people within our spheres of influence, whether you physically live near them or not, whether you like them or not, whether they are believers or not. But in our next five points, we have a lot to cover, so let's jump right into our third principle in using freedom for God's glory, the complacency of Christian freedom, the complacency Of Christian freedom. As you are aware, complacency is that feeling of quiet pleasure or security. And there is a measure of security, great security, in using our Christian freedom correctly. In verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. Paul returns again to the issue of meat the particular issue that he's referring to is that the meat sold in the butcher shops in that city and in that day had a considerable likelihood of having been sacrificed to a pagan god and so he's addressing this issue following up where he said you cannot go and eat at a pagan temple and so the question is well what about meat you see The animals that were sacrificed to the pagan gods could not all be consumed by the priests and the participants, and so the rest would be taken to the marketplace, specifically the meat market, we would say the butcher shop, and it would be sold there. And so knowing that this was common practice, knowing that much of the meat had been sacrificed on a pagan altar, what was a Christian to do? After all, isn't Paul saying that we are to avoid this whole scenario involving the indirect participation of or worship of false gods through their feasts? What am I supposed to do? I go out and I buy meat, and there's a good chance that that was from the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Zeus. Now, to understand this, there's an important note I want to give you about the cultural context. The Jews of the day, not the Christians, the Jews, which was a predominant religion at that time, were not allowed to buy meat from Gentiles, that is non-Jews, unless they knew for sure that it had not been offered to idols. How would they know it had not been offered to idols? Simple. They asked the butcher, was this meat from the temple? And they would tell him. They would gladly tell him because usually the meat offered at the temples was good, high-quality meat because the animals that had to be offered and sacrificed were to be without blemish. So it wasn't something they were trying to hide. It was something they would freely give. Like, yeah, this is the good meat. This is from the temple. It was sacrificed. Part of it was sacrificed and eaten at the temple. The rest you can buy for yourself. So the Jews had to ask because they had to know the history of that meat. But what Paul is saying to the Christians, who were very aware of this Jewish requirement, was, don't ask. Just buy the meat and eat the meat. Again, the principle of freedom comes up. There were practical limitations, of course. Don't buy meat that you can't afford, be a good steward, things like that. But as far as can a Christian in clear conscience, eat that meat, he said. sure. Just don't ask where it comes from. Now remember, in Corinth at this time, idolatry was rampant. So again, the reality was that much of the meat purchased at the public market had a previous association with idols and idol worship. But here's the implication of what Paul is saying here. He isn't just saying, be ignorant of immorality. They know that it's going on. They know the likelihood of of where that meat came from. He's not saying that, you know, if there's immorality, just look the other way. That That in and of itself would be immoral, wouldn't it? You know this, right? The implication in this particular context is that God doesn't care. He doesn't care. It's not important to him what the meat was used for before. And we see this in Paul's reasoning. Don't ask questions for conscience sake or on the ground of conscience. What he is saying is that the conscience should not be involved here at all because according to God, the meat is fine. It's a matter of indifference to him. And what's important here is that the Christian is buying meat for his own consumption in the privacy of his own home. Because later in the passage, the rules change a bit when being served food at another person's house, especially if there's a weaker brother present. So you could say this would also apply if you are serving that meat to a weaker brother in your home. But this is just for a family meal at your home. If you ask the butcher if the meat came from a pagan temple and the answer is yes, Now, you have to consider your conscience because you cannot cause a weaker brother to stumble and perhaps even violate your own conscience in knowing where that meat came from. Outside of that knowledge, the conscience is not involved at all. It's just meat. Now, we need to be careful. This is not a principle that can be carried over to other areas of life or other gray areas. For example, you know that drugs are drugs. You know that stealing is stealing. You know that alcohol is alcohol and it may cause some people to stumble. But this is just meat. For example, you can't say, "Hey, just date that girl. Don't ask if she's a believer." See, you can't apply that here. Just date that guy. Don't ask if he's married or not. Right? Little extreme example, but you can't carry this over to other gray areas. We get the idea here when it comes to meat. You've heard it said let sleeping dogs lie. Don't ask questions and stir up trouble, ruining it for yourself and for everybody else. Because for this particular issue, it is a non-issue for God. You only make it an issue when you ask unnecessary questions. Now, to be clear, the difference between the meat and the example of dating someone that I just gave is that eating meat, any type of meat, in and of itself is not sinful, whereas marrying an unbeliever is. The principle can be applied to a common issue for believers today, especially this month of June. Do I patronize a business that supports an immoral cause? Not a criminal enterprise, but a social or political movement. Buying a coffee at a cafe and drinking that coffee is not sinful. It's not sinful to buy coffee and drink coffee, right? No one thinks that's sinful, right? I hope you don't. If you do, it's not. I'm sure there are some extreme examples of where buying coffee is sinful, but I don't know, outside of murdering someone for coffee, I don't know, I can't even think of something, okay? But, if you have a God-centered issue with giving money to a business that will in turn give money to an LGBT organization, for example, then you have a matter of conscience. The reality today, especially this month, you don't really need to ask because they're flying the flag, they're, they're advertising, there is one fast food restaurant That in a jab to a Christian-run other fast food restaurant is saying, you buy our chicken sandwich, 40 cents of every sandwich goes directly to that organization. And how do we know we're taking a jab? Because of how they spell the chicken sandwich and the commercial also says, and by the way, we sell them on Sunday. And so even Christian businesses running their businesses as Christians get mocked, get attacked in some way by other businesses in the name of competition. But what we're talking about is if you don't know, the same principle would apply. Why ask questions? For conscience sake, don't ask and just enjoy your coffee. Just as the Corinthians were not to ask the butcher, where does this meat come from? Now, again, practically speaking, some organizations are very blatant these days, and so you need to let your conscience be your guide on those issues and on those businesses. But the reality is, just as with butcher shops in ancient Corinth, it is equally difficult to find establishments, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, that do not support or have affiliations with organizations and movements that we, based on Christian principles, disagree with. But there's some you just don't know. And then Christians often take it upon themselves to go online and investigate the CEO's personal life, to comb through the company's financial statements to see, oh, have they given money to promote abortions or uh, LGBTQ movement? They want to dig. They want to ask questions. And God is saying, just don't ask and get on with your life. And if it's very clear that your money in turn will go to these organizations, then let your conscience be your guide. If I can ease your conscience a little bit, you understand that flying the pride flag today is a business decision. It may have absolutely nothing to do with what they believe. It brings in business, and depending on the day, or the city, frankly, it prevents their business from getting destroyed or boycotted or in the news. Again, we need to be wise. We need to let our conscience be our guide. But when it comes to the things that, as we will see in the next point, God has provided, stop asking questions, stop meddling, Just praise God and enjoy it. What's the big picture behind this fourth principle in using freedom for God's glory? The control of Christian freedom. This is the ruling principle, the controlling principle. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Four, that connects us. He's explaining Why don't ask any questions and eat the meat with a clear conscience? This is Psalm 24 and verse 1. And it was a common blessing or grace that, again, Jews would say before meals. Rabbis, the Jewish teachers, would refer to this verse as a reason for thanking God for food. It was a practice that Jews were obligated to adhere to. Oftentimes, they would just simply quote this particular verse, Psalm 24, 1 as their prayer before their meal. In fact, rabbis would go so far as to say you could not even taste the food until after reciting this or another benediction over the food. We do something similar, praying for our food, saying grace, whatever you want to call it, blessing the meal, though probably not as stringently as the Jews did. If you've ever had a toddler or a teenager in your home, you know that it's almost impossible to get the kids not to touch or taste the food before you pray for the food. And so this is the background of this. Again, Paul is referring to a Jewish practice, but the quote of this verse makes it very clear what our mindset is to be as well. The point of this quotation from the Psalms is that God is ultimately in control and we need to see things through his eyes. God is in control, and we need to see things through His eyes. Now, again, there's a, there's a nuance here. We need discretion. We saw things through His eyes, and He very clearly abhors pagan idolatry and does not want Christians to have anything to do with the celebration, even if you're going to the temple for a birthday party or a wedding celebration or whatever it may be. But this is very different. What Paul is saying is the meat that has been purchased in the marketplace, the divine source, God of the meat, cancels out any pagan or sinful affiliation that it once had. Any gross, idolatrous usage it had before arriving in the butcher shop window. Canceled out. First Timothy chapter four, turn there with me. First Timothy chapter four verses four and five. And we see the same principle here. Why is it okay? First Timothy four, four through five. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's what Psalm twenty-four, one says. It's giving thanks. Verse 5. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You see, Jews were not allowed to eat meat that was previously sacrificed to false gods. And contrary to what Paul is instructing here, the Jews had to ask about the history of any particular piece of meat Before buying it, not even eating it, even buying it. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that we Christians are justified in eating any food, including those that are prohibited in the Old Testament, ones that are still prohibited by practicing Jews today. The reason? Because God is the source of the food. Comes from a pagan altar. You can eat it, as long as it's not at the pagan altar. You have a feeling that that meat that you uh, just ordered at the Chinese restaurant, because of the little uh, idol they have in the corner and the incense, that maybe they they uh, somehow dedicated this to Buddha before serving it to you. Don't ask any questions. Just eat it because it's provided by God. It's okay. It's fine. You know, on the mission field, there was a well-known missionary. Um, I should take that back. wasn't well-known like you would read about him in books, well-known among our our group. He was a friend of a friend. And people asked him, you go to some crazy places and you got to eat some pretty wild stuff, stuff that you know might make you sick, stuff that you've never eaten before, stuff that isn't cooked and should be cooked, not like sushi, But like other things that only this particular village doesn't cook and eats, what do you do? Because you need to have a testimony. You can't reject it, especially in these villages. Foreigner comes. It's like in the Old Testament. They're they're slaughtering the fattened calf. They've been saving it for this. They don't even eat this. They don't eat meat, and now they're serving this raw, bloody meat to the foreigner. You can't say no. I have, I know one guy who is the uh, is the father of my old team leader. When I was on the mission field, he went to northern Siberia. Snow three buses high. Okay, they laughed at him when he explained his thick down jacket. He said that's colder than the underwear that we wear because they're 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 nomadic, and you want know what they did for him. They killed one of their reindeer. And gave him the honorary first cup of warm, fresh blood. So, what did this missionary say? You just bless it and eat it. Just bless it and eat it. Very different context. He's blessing it and trusting God that he will not die. But it's the same idea. Don't ask questions. Don't take that reindeer blood and put it under a microscope. Hey, is this? Is this reindeer you just killed? Was it sneezing or limping or anything? Were there any diseases? There are worms in its stomach? No. Just bless it and eat it. Bless it and eat it. And that's what, you don't have to drink reindeer blood. We're talking about like Starbucks cafe, you know. But what I'm saying here is, is you just praise God for it. It comes from Him. Thank Him for it. Don't ask silly questions. Don't dig into the financials of the company. Don't ask where did this meat come from? Don't ask hey you know that little boot up there was this meat uh, did you pray over this meat to him Just enjoy your americanized chinese food <laughs> your overpriced coffee your pasta with too much sauce I don't know I'm just going off here who would you sacrifice pasta to uh My side point being none of our Americanized ethnic dishes are what you find in the actual countries, but that's beside the point here. Bless it and eat it. The New Testament is not silent on this issue. It is very clear that no foods are to be forbidden, even the ones that the ancient Israelites could not eat. You want to eat octopus, eat octopus. You want to eat a rock badger, eat a rock badger. Here's a taboo one. You want to boil a baby lamb in its mother's milk? Did anyone, has anyone ever understood that one? Go ahead and do it. Bon appetit. Just bless it and eat it. It comes from the Lord. He has made it so that all is allowed, even with questionable histories, questionable spiritual histories. If that's questionable, like it's rotten, I would say don't eat it. I mean, you still can. That's Christian freedom, but... As a friend, I would recommend you not. Now, inevitably, there's someone who hears this and says, no, well, what about uh, cannibalism? Yes, I get questions like this, and people just want to stir up trouble. Can I eat human flesh? Human flesh is not food. Just because you can cook it and put it in your mouth does not make it food. Let's stick within the parameters of what we're talking about here, okay? You can eat the meat. But this brings up another related point. The usage of Psalm 24-1 does not mean that anything within God's creation is allowable. He did create and provide the marble for the pagan temples, for instance. That doesn't mean you should go sit in their worship and enjoy it. Women were created by God, but the women who became prostitutes were also created by Him. That doesn't mean you can go and partake and say, well, this is part of God's creation. You get the point. There are still parameters within the scriptures. We still need to stick with the clear teaching of Scripture, and what Scripture says in this case is that the meat does not belong to a demon or a false God. It belongs to the Lord. We need to stop thinking that somehow objects are tainted by evil and that evil resides within the object. If this was true then you could never use the internet on a library computer or even buy a used car. Especially from an unbeliever. Because what if that computer or that car was used for some immoral purpose? It's not tainted by evil. And, and, and sometimes we think this way. We know that it's okay, but we like, well, they used it for this, and it just it just feels like there's something wrong. There's an evil spirit here. No, it's given by God, it doesn't carry over in that way. Go buy a house where someone was murdered, you'll get a great deal. There's no ghosts, there's no evil spirits, it's not tainted. We think this way. We think this way about Halloween. We think this way, way about other cults. It doesn't carry over. Psalm 24.1, it comes from the Lord. Now, this is all very helpful in our lives when we deal with gray areas. We are reminded of God's sovereignty and provision rather than focusing on our own fears and anxiety, the what-ifs, where did this come from. It also gives a great appreciation and gratitude for what we have, what God has given us, which Paul will talk about more later. But as he continues, he delves into a very practical example that guides us again in using our Christian freedom for his glory when other people are involved. Our fifth principle in using freedom for God's glory, the criterion of Christian freedom. The criterion of Christian freedom. Look at verses 27 and 28. We're back in 1 Corinthians 10. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, this means invite to their house, not the temple, their house, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions, again, for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, hey, this, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. Here's the scene. You're invited over to someone's house for dinner. This is a friend or family member who's an unbeliever. In this scenario, you're living in first century Corinth, by the way. And he serves up a a nice lamb roast. Do you eat it? Knowing that this person buys meat from the marketplace and this might have been sacrificed to a pagan god very simple same principle applies don't ask questions enjoy your meal and share the gospel be polite is what paul is saying act like a lady act like a gentleman accept the invitation eat everything what's set in front of you whether you like it or not don't ask embarrassing questions. Don't ask questions that will embarrass you and your friends and your family. Don't ask questions that will embarrass him. Oh, do, you know, you know, I'm a Christian. Was this? I would say don't even ask other questions. Does this have onions in it? No. Just be polite. Just eat it. In other words, you can accept the invitation without asking questions about what will be served, just as you can buy the meat from the butcher shop without asking questions questions. It's fine. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but even in sending out the 70 in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells them this very same principle. In Luke ten eight, in giving the instructions to the 70, he says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Eat whatever you want. Be polite. Be all things to all people. Win an audience. You're there for evangelism. But Paul goes on. There's another scenario that Paul sets forth. There's another believer there. He's also at the dinner. And he somehow knows that the meat was previously sacrificed on a pagan altar. Well, in that case, once you're informed, you politely refuse to eat the meat. Same dinner at the unbeliever's home. Here, we are going back to the issue of not causing another brother to stumble. We know this is not only because another person has brought up the meat's association with paganism, but Paul says, for the sake of the one who informed you. Then in verse 29, he will go on to say that this time you make a decision to not eat the meat for the other person's conscience. So, what is the criterion of Christian freedom? Whether or not it will cause somebody to stumble. And we've seen this truth all along. This is pretty much most of what Paul has been instructing us regarding gray areas. It's very simple, so let's move on. Our sixth principle in using freedom for God's glory is the concession of Christian freedom. We find this again in the beginning of verse 29. I just want to point out and make it a separate point. He says, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. Again, we are to prefer other people. You want to eat. You want to be polite. Your favorite dish is lamb. But for the sake of this weaker brother or sister, you don't eat for his sake for his conscience. Because when there is someone there whose conscience will be affected by your exercise of Christian freedom, then you concede, you yield that freedom. Simply put, you don't want to hurt his conscience. You don't want to cause him to stumble. Here we can fittingly apply this to all areas of Christian freedom, all gray areas. Yes, you are free but you must concede that freedom when it will hurt another believer. In other words, you concede that which is lawful because it is neither profitable nor edifying to him. Verses 23 and 24. It's not the main point here, but I want to give you a significant side point and a very practical side point. Both the stronger believer and the weaker believer were invited to an unbeliever's house for dinner we as christians need to have friendships and relationships with those who are not believers that are strong enough and influential enough that they would invite us to their own home for dinner nowhere in scripture are we told to completely cut out unbelieving relationships? Because if that were true, then we should also remove all of the Scriptures that talk about evangelism and testimony. They were invited over. They had friends. They didn't burn bridges with their pagan friends who had just come from the pagan temple. They didn't burn bridges with their unbelieving friends relatives. They were still invited over. In our culture, especially in California, this would be more invited out to dinner. There are some states where their culture, where it would be inf- offensive to take someone out to dinner. You invite them to your home and cook a meal. Here we more treat people to dinner, but you get the idea. They have relationships with unbelievers. But back to our text. I want to give you a fifth or seventh rather and final principle in using freedom for God's glory, the condemnation of Christian freedom. The second part of verse 29 and verse 30 can be a little confusing. I'd like to clarify these for you. He says, "'For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? "'If I partake with thankfulness,' referring back to Psalm 24-1, "'why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks?' depending on how you look at this in the modern english this could contradict seem like it's contradicting what he just said what paul is saying is that if i choose to exercise my christian liberty in front of someone who will stumble because of it then that person will then be judging me in his mind he will then be condemning me in his mind and paul's saying why should i let that happen Just to be polite to the unbeliever? Just to have that drink? Just to have that piece of meat? Why should I allow my freedom to be judged by another's conscience? And he's saying I shouldn't, and the way I shouldn't is by not practicing those things that would cause him to stumble. See, we like to take this verse and say, Oh, yeah, why should I let you judge me? I could do whatever I want in front of you. That's not what he's saying. Read the context. Ultimately, again, you choose not to partake of the gray area for the sake of the other person. He's not forcing you to abstain. It's still your freedom to choose or not choose. And in this case, it is your choice. And your choice is to not eat it. Do this out of love. Preference for the other believer. And when you do it begrudgingly and not out of love, then you are letting their conscience control yours rather than the other way around. If you do it out of love, it is your conscience that says the right thing is to not eat. Thank you so much for inviting us, but we're going to pass on this meat. See, when you do it willingly and out of love, you are letting God's glory control your conscience. What glorifies Him is preferring others. To summarize, there are two issues involved in the danger of practicing gray areas here. We saw in this context that the stumbling would be caused by the weaker brother uh, who connects your eating temple meat to idolatry. One thing leads to another pretty soon, as we saw weeks ago. Weaker brother is practicing idolatry, even though you never did that, but simply by going to the idol or simply by eating that meat, he says, oh, that's okay, then this is okay. And he takes it further. We saw this played out in chapters 9 and 10. Paul adds a second issue here, which is that in addition to the stumbling, the weaker brother sinfully judges you, condemns you in his mind. Verse 30 Goes back to verse 26. You give thanks. You think it's okay. You understand that all things come from God. Why should your thankfulness and correct mindset become a source of slander for the weaker brother? It shouldn't. How do you keep it from being that way? Don't do it, just avoid it altogether. Again, we tend to do the opposite. See, Psalm 24 1 I gave thanks. I have the right attitude. I can do what I want. He stumbles or judges me. That's his problem. And Paul is saying, no, it's your problem. Because you are to prefer others. And we see this go full circle to where we started last week in verses 23 and 24. You say, well, he's a legalist. Even so, you are to be gracious and abstain. And is that how you teach a Christian who struggles with legalism, not to be legalistic. See, I can do it. That doesn't work. That doesn't work in any situation. You wouldn't do that with your spouse. You wouldn't do that with your kids. It's absurd. Don't rub it in. Don't try to teach that something is okay by doing it in front of someone and thereby causing them to stumble even more. You've been there. You've seen other people do that. And did you say, oh, yeah, that's okay. You've really made me grow by... uh, doing that thing in front of me that I thought was wrong. No. You judge them. You condemn them. You switch churches. Nobody learns that way. And if they do, they learn the wrong thing. Again, refer back to the potential of a Corinthian to think idolatry is okay simply because a Christian eats the wrong kind of meat. All of this that we have seen is about preferring others. A lot of times we talk about gray areas or Christian freedom. And we get, in a sinful way, I believe, hopeful that we will get guidance on how to practice the gray areas as much as possible. But I think very clearly, I know, actually, not think, that Paul has explicitly told us the opposite is true. When it comes to gray areas, you need to abstain for the sake of others. And so really what we saw last week in verses 23 through 24, preferring others, is the theme. It it should be the motivation of everything we do, not just things that are forbidden in Scripture or commanded in Scripture, but even the gray areas. Even the mundane things that are so mundane, they wouldn't even be considered a gray area. Because a gray area is is something that some people think is, is okay, and some people think it's wrong, right? We all agree on that definition of gray area. And if you look closely, and if you're honest with yourself, you know that a definition of a gray area is not some people think it's really good, Morally, it's never that. A gray area is, at best, people think it's okay, it's allowable. Maybe not the best, but we can do it, or it's flat out wrong. And even in the very definition of a gray area, we see that there's a stronger side that we are to lean towards. Well, maybe you think, well, no, I disagree with your definition of a gray area. There are some gray areas, biblically speaking, Or the other side is that it is good. Well, now you know that it is a gray area and that it causes some people to stumble, then you know that it isn't always good or defined as good. And when we talk about biblical love, because we're talking about freedom and glory, right? Biblical love glorifies God. This is not a bummer. This is not, well, I got got to get rid of my liquor cabinet, got to get rid of this, got to stop doing this. More restriction from Pastor Roger, more restriction from the Apostle Paul. No, this, you you get to glorify God. You get to glorify God by sacrifice, sacrificing things, which let's admit you don't want to do in the first place. Yeah, kind of Drain on my, my pocketbook anyways. Got to hide it every time we have small group, whatever it is. You get to glorify God. You get to love people biblically. How much better is that? This isn't restraining. This is freeing. This is freeing to allow you to be the person that you were created back in the Garden of Eden, the person you were redeemed to be, to glorify God, to sacrifice for God, to sacrifice for others. This is wonderful. And I want to close this morning with a separate point. It comes out in this passage. It's not clearly taught in this passage, but it is something that you see very often in the New Testament. In other words, this is uh, an issue, a mindset, a practice that is not just when it comes to idols and meat. This is in everything, gray areas, Sinful areas, areas of obedience. And when you properly interpret this passage, and there's other passages that are more clear, there's a huge underlying point. And this point is one that the modern church, especially in Northern America, has completely gotten wrong and frankly has reversed. Because when you take a step back, it becomes clear, and it comes from the example of the dinner. See, when Paul goes on to say that if a weaker brother is there and points out that the meat is from the temple of a false god and that you in turn are not to eat it, this is the same dinner. This is the same home, the same table in which Paul just said, be respectful, be a testimony, be polite to your unbelieving guest. Don't offend the unbeliever by not eating the meat unless it's to protect the believer. What's the huge lesson? As Christians, we are to love, prefer, and consider all men. All men. But as Christians, we are to love, prefer, and consider Christians over and above non Christians. You are to treat Christians better than non-Christians. You are to love Christians more than you love non. You are to love Christians more than you are to love non-Christians. This is all, just all over the Scriptures. It's modeled by our God. Hate to break it to you. Your heavenly Father loves Jesus Christ more than He loves you. But he also loves you more than he loves your non-Christian sibling or child. You don't believe me? Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of the faith. Do good to all people, but especially Christians. John 13, 34 through 35, powerful passage, famous passage. He is talking to his disciples. He is talking only to Christians here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You say, yeah, but he also tells them to love their enemies. In the Greek... Verse 34 says, a new commandment. A new commandment there in the Greek does not mean new, as in I got a new car and I've never had a car before. I got a new car, completely new. I didn't just get a car wash. This is a new car. Before today, we didn't own it. That's not what he's saying. The Greek word new is more like When the waitress comes over and refills your soda, same cup, same ice, same soda, just giving you an addition to it. It means fresh in quality, same commandment, love. They've known this all their lives, especially the Jews. But I'm giving you a new level of love specifically for one another, and that's how the world will know you are mine. Your intense love for all people, yes, but your maximum intensity of love for one another. First Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Honor everyone, respect everyone, but love Christians. This is why people say, you know, I've been to all these churches. We really need to be like all those churches where we really want to just surround. When visitors come, we need to surround them, make them feel comfortable, make them feel loved, make them leave and say, wow, I was a visitor and they really loved us. And by God's grace, almost every visitor, at least before COVID, has told us that, told me that or at least the ones who have told me, given me feedback on the church. And that's great. We need to welcome visitors, but not to the detriment of fellowship with one another on a Sunday morning. Because of these passages, I don't want our first-time visitors leaving saying, wow, they really loved me. I want them leaving and saying, wow, they really loved each other. And that rubs you the wrong way Because the social gospel is a wrong gospel. The social gospel in so many churches today say sacrifice the church and fellowship for other people. Stop hanging out. Stop fellowshipping. Stop having all these meetings. Go out and feed the homeless. Go out and evangelize the lost. We need to do all of the above. But not as a priority over our relationships with one another. I don't know how to say it. Do you want to believe these verses and passages that are so clear? Or do you want to believe a recent, yes, recent movement, yes, movement, not theology, not doctrine, at least not biblical, a recent movement in the church? That says we need to stop loving each other so much so we can love the world. That's not biblical. We are to do both but love one another more. The church today and especially the social gospel will tell you that we need to do that. That's simply not what the Bible says. It's a noble thought. Yeah. The world. They're dying. It's dark. It's a noble thought but it is unbiblical it sounds godly but that actually contradicts god this is not a call to not evangelize we just saw this i made a point that's not even in the text that you need to have relationships with unbelievers so that you can they're comfortable enough inviting you to their home to eat But we've just reversed this so much. Some of us have reversed it not because of the social gospel. You don't even know that their church is doing this. It's just for some reason or another, you just like unbelievers more. Maybe it's the anonymity. Maybe it's because they don't call you to to a Christian standard like you know we will. Maybe they don't confront you. Maybe you can dress the way you want in front of them and not worry about things hanging out. Maybe it's you can practice all your gray areas. Or maybe, just maybe, you are so judgmental and so proud that you think your spirituality has reached a point that you're just better and different than. Well, if that's the case, we definitely need you more, so hang out. Again, this goes full circle to that which is spiritually profitable and edifying to other believers. There's a, there, there's a nuance of this to the world, but you can't spiritually edify unbelievers. You can't build them up. There's nothing to build on. They're depraved. Now, Paul will go on and say very clearly, we'll talk about in the the coming weeks about evangelism and being a light to the world. But here it's talking about building one another up. And so with that principle and that focus and priority in your lives and in the gray areas, let's use our freedom wisely. Let's use our freedom in a way that aids the church. Let's use our freedom For God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and for the clarity of your word. I pray that we would be a people who are uh, just careful. Lord, though we probably none of us would find us in this exact situation. May we have the right view of gray areas for the sake of your glory and for other people. May you help us cultivate a love and a preference for other believers and for the world. Help us to understand your call for a prioritization of our love for you, followed by the church, followed by the world. Help us develop that. Help us to play that out. Father, in times when we struggle with wanting to be around other believers, when we find the world more comfortable, unbelievers more comfortable, whether it's because of our sin or because of our love of sin or pride, whatever it may be. I pray that you would help us to value those who are like-minded, those, as we saw a few weeks ago, that we share that common communion with as we celebrate the Lord's table an understanding of your sacrifice, a sharing of our redemption. Help us to love biblically you, the world, other believers in a way that you desire us to and to root out the barriers to that in our own lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.